We're going to be looking in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and a message I call, What Do You Want Me to Do for You? You'll see why. Two passages today for our text. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 51, so Jesus answered and said to him, another person we'll see in a few moments. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, that is teacher, master, that I may receive my sight. What do you want me to do for you? As we see so often in Mark's gospel, Mark has brought together two different scenes, two incidents, and one serves as a kind of contrast to the other. Both of these scenes involve people coming to Jesus with a request, and Jesus then asking them specifically exact same question, what do you want me to do for you? To set the scene for us today, Jesus is now turning toward Jerusalem. Uh, for in this trip, it's going to end with a cross and an empty tomb. Just a few days ahead now. Um, John, the beloved disciple, would give a very concise definition of what was on Jesus' heart during this time in verse, chapter 13 and verse 1 of his gospel. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come and that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That's what was on Jesus' mind. Having loved His own, He loved them to the end. Take a moment this morning as best you can and put yourself in Jesus' place. Suppose you were headed to your death and you knew it. You knew you would be horribly, ruthlessly tortured and brutally nailed to a tree to die. You had less than a week, less than a week, before it all played out, this spiritual drama of the ages. See, there's no doubt that Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. Verse 32, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. And so Mark tells us that there was some sense of foreboding in that circle of people that were traveling with Jesus. The apostles, they all knew something was coming. The people around them, they knew something was coming. Jesus has been talking to them about what was about to happen. He's told them again and again and again. So they were disturbed, they were afraid, they were upset. So he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus knew every detail. Every slap 
every lash, every person who would spit in his face, he knew it all. He knew what was coming. Paul would speak of this moment later when he uh, wrote to the church at Philippi and he said uh, uh, to have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being uh, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself. And what did he empty himself of? Himself. Himself. In this pivotal moment then, Jesus is about to perform what arguably, and I don't think really there is any argument about it, what is the most selfless act in all of human history. Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and mine. And at this pivotal moment then, here are all these people coming to Him wanting. For the Bible says that Jesus, having loved His own, that were in the world, He loved them to the end. We could almost say, you know, having wanted from Jesus, they wanted to the very end. Nobody was saying, we know Jesus, what I want from you is that you would die for my sins. Do for me what I can't do. Pay the price for my sins so that I could have eternal life. Pay the price for my redemption. Nobody Nobody was talking to him about doing that. In fact, not only did they not consider that Jesus would do this, they didn't even want him to talk about doing it. Every time he brought it up, they either ignored what he said or they changed the subject. Simon Peter even rebuked him. Imagine. No. We saw these kinds of contrasts then a few weeks ago when Uh, We saw the rich young ruler contrasted with those children that they brought to Jesus. And there was the rich young ruler and his approach. And and, and then that was contrasted with the children brought to him. And everything different about those two approaches. And we see similar things happening in this passage today. Two are going to approach Jesus. Another is going to approach Jesus. And Jesus is going to respond to them with the exact same question. He wants us to notice that. Exact same question. And so we're going to see the approach of James and John to Jesus. A very private approach. And we're also going to see the approach of a man named Bartimaeus or Bartimaeus. The very public approach. Uh, Let's dive off into this this morning. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left. Preeminent positions of power and honor and responsibility. One on your right hand, one on your left. When you come into kingdom, into your kingdom. Matthew tells us that they even got their mother involved in it, uh, making this approach and request to Jesus. And though it was on the road and certainly it was somewhat public, it would be it's obvious that they were taking what we would call an insider approach. It was not a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing. They had talked about this, it had been on their mind, they had planned it carefully, had their mother with them. 
Lord, do for us whatever we ask. You know, I, I know you're going to Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus has just told them what was going to happen. While he's there pouring his heart out to them, there's James and John and their mama waiting for a second. And there they go on that inside track that they no doubt had. Before we get to Jerusalem, Jesus, there's something we want to ask you. The audacity of their request is simply amazing, especially at this moment. What they presented to Jesus was a very open-ended thing, like any child going to mama. Would you do whatever? Would you give me something, Daddy? Just give it to me. What? Don't ask what. Just give. Will you do it? Uh, Jesus wouldn't fall for that. What do you want me to do for you? Of course, he already knew, but he wanted them to say it. We don't want much. Just a couple of thrones. That's all. You see, this is the problem of selfishness. We saw it. They've already been doing this. It's been going on all this time. It's rooted, of course, in their pride. Selfishness is called the defining sin of humanity because selfishness is the root of all of it. All temptations come to us out of our own desires, our desire for ourselves, our desire for self-fulfillment, our desire for self-gratification, our desire for self-satisfaction, but never, 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 Self-denial. Don't hear a lot of preaching about self-denial these days. Don't hear a lot about the virtue of self-denial. Why? Because humanity operates on a completely different level than that. And all temptations come to us out of that. It's been on their minds for a while. Jesus has already been trying to deal with it. It's on their mind again. It will come up again literally on the night before Jesus died. We've already seen last week Simon Peter coming to Jesus. What's in it for us? What's in this for us? And now here James and John. And if you think about it for a minute, that's Jesus' whole inner circle. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, all three of them now, approaching Jesus at the same time, seeking special favor. What's in this for us? Jesus' response was gentle, but it was profoundly effectively. He said to them, verse, or effective, he said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you ask. You want to be on my right hand and on my left hand when I come into my glory? You don't know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? That has nothing to do with the ritual or of water baptism. Nothing to do with that. It does give you an indication of what baptism means because what Jesus is talking about is a time where he was going to be not sprinkled, not get a little dab of suffering on him, but be immersed, 100% immersed in horrible suffering. 
The disciples understood that. We need to understand that too. Verse 39, their boasting is not over. Can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, sure. We're able. Yeah. Do you not see the very casual way they responded to that question? Yeah, we got this. Yeah, we can do it. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared. You don't know what you're asking. You see, the glory that Jesus would receive, he would receive through his suffering. In a narrow sense, Jesus' response could point to the cross. That was the ultimate display of His glory on the cross. This is my glory. And there would indeed be one on His right and one on His left that day. But beyond that, it would in a broader sense, it would speak of the suffering and the persecution that was to come. And Jesus said, you will indeed. James was the first of the apostles to die as a martyr. His death would come quickly. In some way we're not even aware of, he incurred the ire of Herod and he killed him. How did he kill him? He decapitated him. He killed him with the sword. When he saw that uh, it pleased the Jews then, Herod booked Peter for the next execution. But of course the church prayed and that execution didn't happen. But it did for James. One fell swoop, and James would be the first of the apostles to be baptized with that baptism of suffering and death. John would be the very last. While James would die quickly, John would die a lingering death alone, exiled on Patmos. You have to wonder today then, how many times Jesus might respond to our request? Jesus, would you do this for me? I wonder how many times Jesus looks at you and me and says, you have no idea what you're asking for. Aren't you glad that Jesus does know when we don't know? Have no idea what you're asking. Well, the word of this exchange between Jesus, James, and John would quickly spread to the other apostles. And when the ten heard about it, they were very upset. Verse 41, they were greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's talking about the ruling principles of the world. The great rule over the small. The king rule with absolute unquestionable authority over those who are beneath them and who are subject to them. Yet, verse 43, he says, It shall not. Very strong prohibition. It shall not be so among you. 
And so that the greatest in Jesus' kingdom is not going to be that person who wields the sword. It's not going to be that person who has absolute unquestioning authority. The person who is going to be great among you is the one who is the greatest servant. The one who is going to be greatest among you then is the one who will be the slave of all. And Jesus Himself then is the example, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is the great spiritual paradox presented in this text that is the very opposite of our human self-centered practices. Jesus says the way to get what you want is by giving others what they want. The one who serves achieves greatness and prominence. Not the one who demands power or who rushes to be first or tries to be the best. It's the one who provides ministry to others. Who humbles himself or herself to serve. Who achieves Christ-like greatness. And in the amazing simplicity of the Christian faith, the people who are like Jesus and who are serving like Jesus, who are ministering to the others like Jesus, who have humbled themselves and emptied themselves so that they are like Jesus, don't even know it. And if they ever got it in their head, well, man, I'm really being like Jesus today. They'd lose it. It's all gone. We humble ourselves. How do we do that? By serving others. You know, American Christianity is serving today from the same plague that American society is large is suffering from. The problem the disciples struggled with is problem we all struggle with, only it's turned into an epidemic today. A true source of power and might of the Christian faith is not selfishness, self-centeredness, give me what I want. It's not it. The true source of power and might in the Christian faith comes when we humble ourselves to serve others. And Jesus gave us the example. The spirit of the world is both oblivious to and completely unconcerned about the needs of others. Could care less. The ugly side of the world is the me and the mine and the give me and do for me. And I get it because I deserve it. And it's never uglier than when it's among God's people. I'm not sure what all the effects of COVID are. None of us are. I'm not going to be a bit surprised when 10 years from now we're going to find out that it was doing a whole lot more to us than we knew at the time. I'm not going to be a bit surprised if that happens. But I know one thing that's happened. Somehow through all of the restrictions and the isolation and whatever, it has escalated the problem of people's natural inclination toward being self-absorbed. And we see it everywhere in our culture right now. Everywhere. But we can even see it here. 
So here's a simple question for us out of what Jesus taught. So plainly, I don't have to go through it a whole lot, step by step, verse by verse. I could read it to you in Greek today if I worked really hard at it. You know what it says in Greek? Same thing it says in English. There's no hidden meanings, no obscure truth there. Jesus just said what he said. So what do we do with it? We ask ourselves a question. Do we come to church to serve or to be served? That's a very simple question. Do we come to church based about what we're going to get or what we're going to give? Worship, first of all. Service of others. Do we walk in with the spirit of what's in this for me? Or do we walk in saying, how can I serve my Lord Jesus? How can I honor Him and please Him today? How can I minister to His people? How can I minister to the lost? The great Bible scholar and preacher Warren Wiersbe was fond of saying that the New Testament church is the only institution in the world that exists to benefit its non-members. Isn't that interesting? We can even take this a step further. Do you go to work on Monday with a question, what do I have to do in order to get what I want? Do we approach work on the basis of what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? Or do you approach that with the question, what can I do to serve our customers? What can I do to help our business do well? You fill up a place of employment with a bunch of folks who come there saying, what am I going to get out of this? And you're going to have a grumbling, bickering, unhappy bunch of folks in a failing business. But if we get past that and and we have people who come saying, you know, how can I do my job well? How How can I help advance the cause of my company? How can I minister or help my customers? How can I then be a good employee and therefore demonstrate the truth of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have a bunch of happy people there and a bunch of satisfied customers. You see, it's not just about church life, folk. It's about all life. You want to have a miserable marriage? Find Put two people together who are always saying, what about me? Works across the board. Jesus set us a simple example. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. So we see this private approach by James and John when they came to him, kind of on their inside track. Hey, Jesus, before you get to Jerusalem, Mama wants to ask you something. (laughs) Oh... What a contrast that is with the next scene. Verse 46. They came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And that's where the words of our text picked up, where we saw a few moments ago where Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And we'll see that. What a contrast this is, plain, uh, painfully obvious. Implicit, you see, in the disciples' request was something that they felt they deserved, maybe even were owed. But this blind beggar is crying out for mercy. His need is true and legitimate, there's no doubting of that. Bartimaeus heard the crowd passing by, and as soon as he found out it was Jesus, he lit up. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. There's 14 missionary Baptists told him to be quiet. We don't act like that in this church. They discourage him. Not just one or two, many of them. But old Bartimaeus, he wasn't listening to a bit of that. Uh, The more they told him to hush, the more he hollered, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That was all he had. He's not after what he deserved. He's not talking about what he gave up or what he's done. Mm -mm. He only wanted one thing. Mercy. Mercy. Where the disciples came, James and John, with that private insider request, He is loud, insistent, and desperate. He doesn't care who else hears his request as long as Jesus hears it. You understand? You want to understand a little bit more about his plea for mercy. Realize that in John chapter 9, you remember Jesus healed the blind man in the temple. And as the blind man in the temple then was dealing with the interrogation that he was subjected to by the religious leaders, they said to him, you were altogether born in your sins. You see, that's what they considered. Because he'd been born blind, therefore he was born under the curse of God. A blind man uh, in, in this day and time was considered to be under the curse of God. The gospel accounts emphasize seven specific miracles where Jesus healed blind people. There were other accounts where they brought to Him many who were blind. And and we're not given any interaction with that. We're not given any information about that. Uh, But there were seven different stories of people who were healed of their blindness. This is the only one of those blind people that Jesus healed whose name was given to us. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, because of his blindness, would have been only slightly above another person that Jesus had had an encounter with during this trip through Jericho. Luke tells us about his story. He was a man of of short stature. A guy named Zacchaeus. Same time, same story. Many, many people believed on Jesus. Jesus interacted with a lot of people who were not given their name. But here's two people in Jericho on this same moment in time. And both of them are clearly identified for us in Scripture. One was Zacchaeus. One was Bartimaeus. It's probably safe for us to conclude that that would mean that those names became well known among the Christian people of their day. They might have been unknown at that moment in time when Jesus came up, but they weren't unknown after that. They followed Jesus. These two named figures are the last named convert. And one of few, very few, named recipients of miracles. 
When Bartimaeus cried out Jesus, he was crying out Savior, the one who saves, because that's what Jesus means. When he cried out Son of David, he was confessing that Jesus was the Messiah. He had heard a lot about Jesus, no doubt. He sat on the crossroads of life. Jesus had filled the land of Israel with sign after sign and miracle after miracle, and many of which were the giving of sight to the blind, something that had been particularly prophesied by Isaiah the prophet. One of the things the Messiah would do was give the blind their sight. Bartimaeus had figured this out. Jesus, son of David, he knew who he was. He was the Messiah, and he was the Savior. No, Peter had confessed, you are the Christ. When Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just shortly after that, of course, Jesus would carry him, James and John, up on the mountain of transfiguration, and they would see him in all of his glory. <laughs> and Peter and John, James and John, it seemed like every time it comes up after that, they were asking for some special privilege. Bartimaeus didn't see Jesus in His glory, but he saw Him as the Messiah, and he believed that He was the Messiah every bit as much as Peter, James, and John did. He wasn't asking for nothing but mercy. And as he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, are you surprised that Jesus stopped in His tracks? (laughs) Jesus always stopped for that. He still does. He still does. Mark 10, 49, So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he arose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. What a story. Take just a moment to see how this plays out. Mark tells us that Jesus specifically commanded people to go get Bartimaeus. He commanded him to be called. Jesus had no problem going to blind people. He's done that. We've seen it. Remember, there's seven different stories. Remember the guy, he spit in his eyes. Remember one, he made mud and rubbed it in his eyes. One, he just laid his hands on him and said, go your way and be healed. And they were healed. I mean, Jesus had no trouble getting to blind folks. But he specifically commanded people to go get Bartimaeus. You know what that means? That means somebody got to bring him to Jesus. Yeah. What a great story that is. Somebody got to bring Bartimaeus to Jesus. There's no cure for a selfish pride for heart like bringing somebody to Jesus. But there was more. Somebody got to tell him that Jesus was calling him. That's what they said. Uh, you can hush. Hey, be quiet a minute. Jesus is calling you. It's going to be all right. Jesus is calling you. Jesus put one of the on prominent display here, one of the great truths of the Christian faith. You shall be witnesses unto me. What do we tell a lost world? Same thing they told Bartimaeus. Jesus is calling you. 
You may be sitting at home this morning. I want you to know that Jesus knows exactly where you are. And He knows exactly who you are. You may be sitting in this building today. Jesus knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly who you are. And the same Jesus that knew where Bartimaeus was and who he was and called him is the same Jesus that knows where you are and who you are and is calling you. If you're going through a tough time, Jesus knows it. If you're lost in your sin, you don't see any way out. Jesus knows it. If you're feeling helpless and hopeless, Jesus knows where you are and who you are. And the same Jesus that was calling him is calling them. But the problem is the world don't think that. The world only thinks that Jesus is out to destroy them if they think of him at all. They don't know how much he loves them. One of the greatest privileges that any of you have, and any of I, that I've ever had, that any of us ever has, is to tell people that Jesus loves you. And He's calling for you. So somebody got to bring him to Jesus. Somebody got to tell him that Jesus was calling for him. And then when he got to Jesus, what happened? Well, Jesus saved him. Now, if you look at this in verse 42, it says, Go your way. Jesus said, Your faith has made you well. It's an interesting word there. It is a word that is translated almost every time in the Bible as saved. Soza, saved. If you're reading out of the King James Version, it says your faith has made you whole. That's a good translation too. Well is okay. But the whole point is your faith has saved you. And it had. Jesus could have given him sight and all that meant is he'd have died and gone to hell seeing. But his faith had done a lot more than that. Got him a lot more than eyesight. Your faith has saved him. Now you say, well, Bartimaeus was already calling out to Jesus as Savior. You're right. He was already calling him the Son of David. You're right. Bartimaeus had already believed on him. He was already saved. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But Jesus made sure that that whole crowd that had walked by him, that had overlooked him, that had looked down on him, as being under the curse, they all knew this man is cursed no more. Jesus knew it, Bartimaeus knew it, but now they all knew it. Your faith has saved you. Sin is a curse. All of humanity is under the curse of God. And there's only one way to get out from under that curse. And that is by the blood of Jesus Christ who takes away the sin of the world. And it will take away yours today. And I know it will. It's took away mine. And all of us here who are saved can give testimony to that same truth. He wasn't just able to see. He was saved. What's this all mean to us? Uh, Wrapping it up, I want to bring to you or or to your mind or attention uh, a comedian, the late comedian. He was from Liberty, Mississippi. That ought to give you a clue. His name was Jerry Clower. In the 1970s, uh, radio was king and the stories became records that we all heard again and again and again over the radio. We would listen to him again and again and again and we laughed again and again. I always liked what he said. He said, people say I tell funny stories. He, don't. he said, I don't. I tell stories funny. That was, that was Jerry Clower.
1977, the year I graduated high school, he released an album. I purchased it as an eight-track tape. <laughs> Just saying, I wore it out. Eight tracks didn't last very long. And it was called Ain't God Good. That was his testimony. Jerry Clower wasn't a preacher. He was a Christian comedian. He was a, he was a dedicated Christian man, a lifelong Baptist. And his story, Ain't God Good, his testimony was that record I bought. It's on YouTube. I checked this week. It's worth an hour of your time to listen to it if you hadn't. It's the testimony of an old country boy who grew up in a simpler world. Came to know Jesus Christ. Changed his life. He never got over it. That ain't God good. He spoke a lot about church life in that story. And being a lifelong Baptist, of course, that was easy for him to do. He spoke of how it was possible for a person to get a spirit of complaining. He called it nitpicking. If you don't know what nitpicking is, ask your mama or your grandma. They can tell you. It's a very laborious process, but it basically came to refer to a, a kind of a complaining kind of spirit where you dig through everything and try to find something to fuss about. And he proposed in that album a simple cure that I've never forgotten. And I'm simplifying this and putting it in Arkansas language because I can't speak it like he did. This is what he said. He said, if you find yourself with a complaining spirit where nothing seems to make you happy, you go to church and it's just not there for you anymore. He said, this is what you do. Go find somebody who's lost. Get to know them. Tell them about Jesus. Maybe see them saved. Bring them to church with you on Sunday. Introduce them to the preacher. Sit by them. Sing praises to God with them. He said, when you see that person walk down that aisle and profess faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized, he said, you're going to find out your spirit of complaining is gone. Amen. Everything will look better to you. I'm not trying to say to you today that there's not room for improvement. If a, if a church got a report card, and twice now in five minutes I have to say this, if you don't know what a report card is, ask your parents. If the church got a report card, every one of them would have a red check mark on the back that says needs improvement. Including this one. Every one of them. Why? Because we are made up of people and there is always room for improvement. Always. Always. So I'm not saying there's, there's not something out there that needs improvement because there is. But I am saying this. Any church anywhere can be greatly improved with more people who are there to serve rather than to be served. I mean, the bottom line is that's kind of the solution to every failure we have. There's nothing in the world that empties a human heart like filling it up with itself. 
There's no power on earth that can make a selfish person happy. Even Jesus can't do it. He doesn't even try. Nothing sours inside of us any quicker than us. And remember, in all this time, nobody ever came up to Jesus saying, well, I want you to die for me and then teach me how to die to me. Nobody ever said that. I want to remind you today as we wrap this up then that these are the apostles. This is the inner circle. Did I tell you this is Peter, James, and John? Did I mention it was Peter, James, and John? Let me tell it another way. It was John, James, and Peter. Did I tell you that it was these three, Jesus' inner circle, man of transfiguration, apostles of Jesus Christ, walked on water, Simon Peter, disciple whom Jesus loved, James, who is here before Jesus died. Days. And all they're saying is, what's in it for me? And if it can happen to those guys, it can happen to me and it can happen to you. And it does. It does. Give me what I want. Make me happy. Make me feel good. Me, 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 me. And Jesus put it all before him. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It sounds simple. And it is simple. But ourselves gets in the way. There's a time for all of us to be like Bartimaeus. And if you're saved in this service, whether you're in the balcony or down here on the pew, on this side of the church, on this side, on the front or the back, or all the way in the back... If you're saved in this service today, I'm going to tell you, there was a time when you were just like Bartimaeus. You were under the curse, and all you could do was cry for mercy. That's all you had. And if you're saved, it's because you did. You prayed, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And He did. You asked for forgiveness. You got it. He stopped for Bartimaeus. He stopped for you and me too. But then there's, uh, there's, 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 there's always that time, you see, for us to be like Bartimaeus. But then there's that time when Jesus has to take us by the hand then and say, hey, see that guy over there? Go get him. See that one over there? Go talk to him. See this over here? Go serve him. Oh, but he's a tax collector and he's short. I don't care. Go get him. Tell him we're going to his house today. Hope he's got extra chicken. You go tell him. Because you see, there's a time when it's perfectly appropriate. For us, when all we have to say is, Lord, be merciful to me. If you hadn't done that today, I hope you will. I pray it'll be your time. Your time to understand that you need a Savior and that Jesus is the only one that's out there. That you can call on Him and He'll save you. That can be your testimony today. But if you've done that, you can't do it again. There's no need for you to. But there is a need for something. For us to progress along in our spiritual life 
to where we're not anymore the Bartimaeus. But we're the ones who goes and gets him and tells him Jesus is calling. Well, you say, I, I can't teach. I, not everybody can teach. I can't sing. Not everybody can sing. But everybody can be a bringer. <laughs> uh, I didn't get a lot of amens on that, but it's the truth. <laughs> uh, everybody can be a bringer. Everybody can be an inviter. Everybody can meet somebody with a smile on their face. Everybody can be a get em upper You know what a get em upper is? That's when you see somebody that needs a seat, and you get up and you say, here, have mine. Everybody can be a servant, and it means different things for different people. But we never get so old that we say, well, I'm too old to serve. No, you're not. If God still has you on this side of the ground and this side of heaven... You can still serve. There's a place for you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Let's join Him. Let's stand together, please.